Hi, I'm Michael Rueda, and welcome to Leveling the Playing Field, a podcast series where I will explore issues and considerations relevant to those who are making a career out of their talent. My guests, who are experts in their field, will join me each week to dig deep into topics such as intellectual property and protecting your brand, contracts with advisors and agents, and tax and estate planning, to name a few. I hope you enjoy listening to these podcasts as much as I enjoy hosting them. So please sit back, relax, and enjoy. Joining me today is Ridge Barker. He's a partner at Withers, and his practice focuses on a wide range of corporate finance and securities matters, including IPOs, SPACs, debt financings, general corporate securities matters, M&A, regulatory and compliance, corporate governance, private equity, and venture capital, as well as executive compensation. Ridge has served as a legal advisor to many SPACs and other public companies, and has actually served as a sponsor of his own SPAC. Ridge, thanks for joining me today. Oh, Mike, thank you. I'm glad to be here. I'm going to dive right in. When I started practicing law, I joined a firm that you were at, and I had the pleasure of working with you right away. And some of the work that we were doing, if I remember correctly, the first thing I worked on with you was a public company debt financing, which was obviously very new to me. And then we transitioned into a SPAC deal that you were heavily involved with. And recently, SPACs have become very trendy. They're back, right? And we read a lot about them. And I know as a firm, we're doing a lot of work with SPACs and sponsors and whatnot. So I wanted to spend some time today talking about what SPACs are, what it means to be on a SPAC board or and a public company board, and mainly because... Many of the clients that we work with, I wouldn't say many, but some of them are now being asked to be part of SPAC sponsorship teams or SPAC boards. And many of those individuals have served on private company boards. But to me, public company board service and particularly SPAC board service is a totally different ballgame. And given your experience, the questions that I wanted to ask you relate to that area. So in your opinion... For someone who served on a private company board and is now joining the board of a public company, what advice would you give them? What, what considerations should they take into account? What things would you highlight? How is it different? Thank you, Mike. Yes, <laughs> we've worked together a long time and it's been a terrific experience. And the interesting thing about SPACs and public company work is it really draws on the full range of expertise that you need as a lawyer. There's both the your legal requirements, right, of corporate governance, corporate law, securities law, whatever else that happens to be involved, creditors' rights, and so on. But also understanding the business, how businesses work, implications for financial statements, and even personal relationships. And personal relationships are very important for a board service. And when you advise boards or actually having served as a director on a public company, you sort of appreciate how interpersonal relationships can affect decision-making. And that's a, a critical part of any board service. So from my experience, both as a, as a director myself and as a board advisor, if I was invited to join a public company board and had not served on a public company board, one of the first things that people are concerned about is, is the liability as a public company director significantly different than as a private company director? And we all read about it. We know we live in a sort of a litigious environment and public companies get sued all the time by shareholders and others. From the point of view of joining a board, assuming it's a creditworthy company, I would not have any greater concerns about being a public company director than as a private company director. That doesn't mean that you can't get sued, right? And often right. the suits are brought personally, 
but from the point of view of actual liability, it's relatively low. The number of circumstances where directors are held personally liable is pretty low. So from the point of view of personal exposure, I would not be too concerned about it. You do want to be sure that the company has its policies and procedures and director protections in place. So they would be you know, insurance, indemnification, exculpation, and understanding that policies and procedures of the board regarding governance matters, that they have appropriate controls, appropriate board oversight. Probably the most important thing, and this goes back to the relationship issue, is the relationship among the directors. Is there sort of open and considerate and thoughtful communication among them and willing to consider uh, different ideas and different viewpoints and take them all into account in the decision-making process, not only among the directors, but with the uh, company management as well. Those are kind of the things that I would focus on. There is obviously issues that come up with each particular company that you would be invited to join, but from an individual's point of view, it can be a great opportunity, a great learning experience, and something that I would definitely consider. And does that list change at all? If it's a SPAC board, is the board member's role any different or more hands-on with respect to the target analysis process? And then obviously when you've identified a target and it's time for the acquisition and recommending the acquisition to shareholders, how is that process different, if at all? The basic principles for a SPAC director are similar to those for any other public company director. The SPAC process, though, is a little bit different, at least until you complete your initial business combination. Any major transaction is going to get close when you're completing a multi-hundred million dollar or billion dollar acquisition. And that's material for the size of the company. It's going to get close scrutiny both from regulators and from the public, from analysts and so on. And so it's a fairly intense environment. Again, that goes back to the relationships among the directors and with management to be sure that as a director, you're getting full information that you're a able to participate and exercise oversight over the process, and that you understand all the key opportunities and risks that go with the transaction. Uh, That said, most SPACs are set up so that they bring those kinds of procedures and processes to bear Mm -hmm. so that the management as well as the directors and the gatekeepers, right, the lawyers, the accountants, and bankers, all try to ensure that adequate information full disclosures brought to the directors so they can make an informed decision and then make an informed recommendation to the shareholders. It's a fairly time intensive because SPACs have a limited life, but because you're not operating an actual business, you're really focused on a transaction. It's a manageable process and a fascinating and interesting process as well. Again, it could be a great opportunity for somebody. You were a SPAC sponsor as well. And most SPACs have 18 months or so to find a target. How was that experience? 18 months sounds like a long time, but I bet in the eyes of a sponsor, when you're in the weeds of analyzing potential targets, that time can go by pretty quickly. What was that experience like for you? So 18 months is not very long. It's surprising how fast all of a sudden that deadline could loom up at you. From a general practice, I think if you're in a SPAC, you really want to focus on getting your business combination target identified and at least negotiated with, within six months. Once you start to get later in the term of your SPAC, the leverage starts to then move 
from the backside where you're bringing capital and experience and those kinds of mm -hmm. value adds to a target to the target side because you're getting at the end of your life and the target knows that you need to get a deal done or you're going to risk losing your sponsor promote. And by the same time, your investors and others investing in the SPAC know that as you get towards the end of your life, that you're going to be under that pressure as well. And so they're going to wonder a bit more about whether the terms that you've negotiated are appropriate. Really the first six months, I would say, after you've launched your SPAC, that you really want to be focused on getting a deal done, at least getting it negotiated, agreed, and disclosed. Mm -hmm. By the way, before you launch your SPAC, you want to have your team and your process and procedures that you're going to follow to look for a target, negotiate with a target, the, the NDAs, the diligence request list, the diligence process, diligence team, all those kinds of things set up and ready to go so that you hit the road running right, you know, right after you close. Makes sense. Speaking of SPAC teams, right? And we'll get into athletes and former athletes and celebrities in a minute who are a part of SPAC sponsorship teams and boards. You've been working with SPACs for quite a while. Have you seen the market for SPACs change at all in terms of are the industries that SPACs are focused on, has that become broader? Have the size of deals changed? The types of people that are putting SPACs together? Have you seen some really identifiable changes over the course of the last 10 years or so? Particularly over the past two years, the SPAC has evolved into a institutional and mainstream product. Mm -hmm. Actually, the first SPAC, I think, was in 2003. So they've been around for a long time. Right, right. It's a model that's sort of evolved gradually over time and is pretty well understood by the participants, the lawyers, the bankers, and so on who regularly do SPACs. But it has become mainstream and institutionalized. So SPAC deals have gotten larger. We see more repeat SPAC sponsors where you'll see a sponsor that will do four, five, six SPACs in a row. And right. each one can be out looking for a target at the same time. And while there's been a cooling off period over the past three months or so, that's primarily due to both a little bit of a glut on markets or markets. And so right. sometimes they pendulum swings a little too far with too much supply and then can swing the other way with too little supply. And you have the SEC focusing on some technical issues in connection with SPACs, particularly the accounting for warrants. Leaving those kinds of things aside, that the market for SPACs has matured, kind of an understood process. They offer opportunities for companies to go public that traditional IPOs and direct listings now may not really offer. It's a terrific opportunity for some types of companies. We've seen that concentration of transactions in the TMT areas. Probably a third of all deals have been done over the past 12 or 18 months have been in the TMT sector, as opposed to previously, they were more concentrated in industrial and cash flow generating. So that's been an interesting development. Yeah. And going back to the comment you made about athletes and celebrities and so on, particularly in the, the media and entertainment space within those sectors. Right. Um, they bring a unique perspective. Now, it's one thing for somebody who's been a, a lawyer, a banker, uh, an executive, not in those industries to try and understand what's going on in those industries. But somebody who's actually been on the playing field or been on, you know, in front of a camera as opposed to behind a camera can bring a different perspective. If a SPAC is focused on that kind of a sector, then having a variety of experiences that you can bring to the table at your SPAC board is very helpful. And that's a good lead into my next question. Athletes, celebrities, former athletes serving as part of SPAC sponsorship teams has become uh, pretty common uh, recently. And with 
many athletes and former athletes, even athletes that are currently in playing their sport, sitting on both sides of of sport, right, as an athlete, and then maybe on the ownership side in, uh, of a team in a different league, in a different sport. You see a lot of that these days. There is a knock that making them part of your sponsorship team is just a marketing tool. Whereas because of the fluidity between athletes and business and so on, could there be actual relationships that these individuals have that are helpful to spec sponsors in opening doors to meet potential targets or other executives that can be helpful in identifying businesses that they're interested in? Do you think that that's true? Do you think there is some real value there that athletes and other people who are, I would call them non-traditional directors or so on, can provide to these sponsorship teams? Yes, I do. And I actually think the knock that athletes are added to a board just for the uh, celebrity status is actually unfair. Because if you think about it, there are SPACs and public companies that have politicians and celebrity financial people, people who've gotten well-known in philanthropy or public causes or, or other things that are wholly unrelated to the business that nonetheless get added to public company or SPAC boards. And nobody makes a comment about that. Right. So I think it's an unfair knock to say that, hey, an athlete is just being added to a board for the celebrity status. And I also think, like everybody else, athletes bring a unique perspective. I agree. Partly, a, there's a focus on high level of performance, high level of commitment, certainly in team sports, how you function effectively in a group of very diverse people who have different interests and nonetheless figure out, hey, how are we going to make this work on the field or in the stadium? And I think it's important to recognize that insights can come from a lot of different directions. They certainly come from athletes. They can certainly come from financial people. They can certainly come from people who have public interests and are activists and who can bring unique perspectives. Because one of the things that a board ought to be able to do is to anticipate to a certain extent the unexpected, to say, hey, look, what are the unintended consequences or of an action or an inaction? Or what are the potential things outside the realm of what's expected that can happen and having different views and different insights with people who work in different networks and therefore have a broader network of views can be very helpful to a board. I agree. I think the intangible values that you touched upon are obviously really beneficial, but to your point, I think it is a different world, right? And there is a lot of crossover between the business world and the business of sports. For example, with the media and entertainment focused specs, I think there are a lot of relationships there that athletes, former athletes, people that have moved into media after their careers, relationships that they can bring to the table that are super valuable in addition to how they can play well with others as part of a, a, a sponsorship team. So I agree with you uh, wholeheartedly on, on that example. So actually, a lot of athletes, for example, have developed a lot of skills about developing their own brands and brands that are absolutely associated with them, but not their person per se. And those are skill sets that boards can benefit from yeah, and companies can benefit from. And so I think there's a, a lot that they can bring to the table. And as I said, I think the knock on <laughs> that SEC comment or others is, is really not very appropriate. You touched about that. The SEC did publish a release essentially telling consumers or investors not to invest in a SPAC because their favorite athlete or celebrity happens to be on the board. Since you brought that up, what do you think the intention there was by the SEC in issuing that release? I think the SEC, and 
to a certain extent, the market as a whole has been a little caught by surprise by things. You can sort of look back to the SEC's response to ICOs in 2017, and the SEC announced SPACs. Now we have meme stocks. The capital markets, financial markets are moving and evolving very quickly. And I think what happens from a regulatory point of view, the regulatory process, as we want it to be, right, is a slower and hopefully thoughtful process. But that means sometimes they're going to get caught a little bit behind the curve. Yeah. Um, and when they get caught behind the curve, sometimes the reaction is not as thoughtful as you would hope it would be. They're trying to react to a fast evolving situation and may not have thought through all the implications and frankly don't have the benefit in many cases of a broad variety of inputs because they're regulatory agencies with defined resources and limited areas where they can go to get insight. And they come with a fairly limited perspective. I think sometimes you get a knee-jerk reaction, I'll say, yeah. uh, that a month or two later after you sort of see how things are evolving, it, you realize that it's not really an appropriate or well-thought-out uh, mm -hmm. response. Well, you bring up meme stocks and ICOs, and I could talk to you forever about all the different things that you work on and your experience and the knowledge base you have, which just means we'll have to do this again. I want to thank you for joining me. I appreciate it. I learned a lot and I hope viewers will enjoy it and appreciate all the opinions and information you provided. So thanks again for taking the time to sit with me and answer all my questions. Oh, Mike, it's been a pleasure. You know, I, after all these years, it's been a, a great working together and looking forward to continuing to doing so. Thanks. <laughs>